0: So last week, we started a new series entitled Church Matters, and we're looking at Paul's letter to Timothy. In your Bible, you'll see the heading as 1 Timothy. And as Paul opens this letter, he begins by reinforcing the foundation of our faith, and that's the gospel. And so last week, we learned that the gospel matters. The gospel matters because it's what unites us. It instructs us in sound doctrine. And it's only the gospel that can transform us. We see that the gospel matters because it's the central tenet of our faith. And it's the foundation of our church. And not only that, getting the gospel wrong has severe consequences. So knowing what's at stake, Paul sends Timothy to the church At Ephesus not only to stop the false teachers but to teach sound doctrine to contend for the gospel and the faith and in turn restore the church and so as we continue in our series Paul moves from foundational truths about the gospel to the source of that gospel and that's God's grace so far in chapter one, Paul has warned of the false teachers. He has exposed their abuse and misrepren- misrepresentation of the law. And he now turns to speak of his personal encounter with God's grace and how it's transformed his life and how it can also transform the church as a whole and us as individuals. And so this sets the stage for us this morning. Because if we say that we understand the gospel, we must also understand that grace matters. Grace matters. Grace matters because it is grace that sets us free from our past. Grace matters because it shifts our perspective to God. And it is grace that will empower us to press on. And so that's where we're headed this morning. As we finish up chapter 1, will you pray with me? Dear Lord, I pray that your grace is evident through your word this morning. That you would illuminate our hearts and minds. That you would use your your word to transform our hearts and our lives. That we'd have a better understanding of grace as we leave this place today. We pray in your name. Amen. So grace matters. First, grace matters because it sets us free from our past. So we're going to begin in verse 12 of chapter 1. Paul says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. And so if we just stop right there and consider for a moment just this one verse. And what you see is Paul's giving thanks to Christ. He's giving thanks to Jesus because it's Jesus who has given him strength for the ministry. It's Jesus who has judged Paul faithful. And in this context, he's entrusted him the gospel. And he's appointed, Jesus has appointed Paul to his service. And when you consider and hear that verse, there's nothing really shocking about that verse especially from a missionary or preacher. And actually, as you read that verse, what you'll probably think is, well, this is what I should be hearing from a preacher, from a pastor, from a teacher, from a missionary. And you would be right. This should be some basic truth that any pastor would tell you. You want to hear the pastor, the preacher, the missionary talking about Jesus. That he's been empowered by Jesus. That he's following Jesus. That he's been entrusted with the gospel. And that he's serving him. But what comes next might take some of his hearers aback. As Paul continues... If he was your pastor, if, he, if you didn't know his story and he kept going, you might be a little startled with what comes next. Here in the beginning of verse 13, Paul continues, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, it's here that we're confronted with Paul's past. And it's not a pretty picture. These aren't minor things. In, in the realm of godliness, in the realm of Judaism, in the realm of Christianity, in the realm of trying to do what's right before God, this is the worst of the worst. This is just about as bad as it gets. A blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. This is seen as we read Acts, especially chapter 8 and chapter 9. You get the backstory of Paul, who at that point in the story is named Saul. And so here, it's this Saul who stood and approved of the execution of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. It's Saul here in Acts 8, who is described as one who is ravaging the church, who is dragging believers off to prison. This is the same Saul who was found in Acts chapter 9, who was breathing threats and murder against the disciples, who even described himself in Acts 26 as he reflected on his past as someone who was punishing the saints, someone who was in raging fury against them. What would you do if that described your pastor? Pastor. This was Paul's past. This was Saul. And it was anything but devoted to Christ and his service. But here in our text, it's this Saul, the same one who is now giving thanks to Christ for his strength and appointing him to his service and entrusting him with the gospel. And many people at the time, and some even still, question, well, how in the world is that possible? How do you go from Saul, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, a blasphemer, to one who is enlisted in the service of Christ? And what I think we should understand this morning is that there is simply no human explanation. There's not one. There is no human explanation that would take Saul, persecutor, blasphemer, insolent opponent to Christ that would transform him into a servant of Christ. There is no reason to think that Paul, at that time Saul, would ever even become a Christian, much less become a missionary, a church planter, an apostle appointed by Christ himself. Never in a million years would any Christian who knew the name Saul put him in the same sentence as disciple of Christ. But that's exactly what had happened. And so we're still wondering, how is that possible? If there's no human explanation, then what is the explanation? And well, Paul does give us an answer to this question. How a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent of Christ suddenly becomes his disciple. And so it comes in the rest of verse 13 and verse 14. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And here, in the context of chapter one, things start to begin to make a little more sense. You see, Paul is warning Timothy about these false teachers and abuses of the law. And as he's thinking about his own life, what better example could there be of the gospel and God's grace besides Paul's own personal testimony? The explanation that Paul gives for his transformation has nothing really at all to do with Paul. The only thing that Paul contributed to his salvation was the fact that he was a sinner. It is important for us to realize that there is nothing in Paul that merited God's favor. This is the short definition of God's grace. It's God's unmerited favor. And he does say here at the end of verse 13 that he received mercy because... He acted ignorantly in unbelief. But Paul isn't trying to minimize his sin here. He's not trying to overlook it or excuse it. I think it actually proves the point that he was in need of a Savior and he finally came to that realization. If you were around for our series in Hebrews a few weeks ago, we briefly talked about the atonement specifically the Day of Atonement. It's recorded in Leviticus 5, Numbers 15. And the big deal about the atonement was how it was applied. And it was applied to those who sinned unknowingly. One who was repentant of their sin. The Day of Atonement was a covering for those sins. But the book of Numbers chapter 15 tells us that for the defiant sinner the one who was against the Lord, who blasphemed God, he got no forgiveness. The atonement did not cover that sin. And that sinner was to be utterly cut off. And I think what, when Paul was confronted with the truth of the gospel, when he realized the error of his ways, when he realized that he was actually blaspheming the Savior that he needed, It was then he responded to God's grace. And he responds in faith and in love. He reasons in his own mind that it was similar to the Old Testament Judaism where he was sinning but unknowingly. And now he was confronted with the sacrifice of Christ himself in front of him saying, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And then in that moment, he asked for forgiveness He has shown mercy and grace as Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so then we realize why Paul is so overwhelmed with thankfulness. Because as he says, he experienced the overflowing grace of Jesus. He knows it wasn't deserved. It was all of God and it was all of his mercy. He was given grace and he was set free. He was set free from his sin. He was set free from his past. He was set free from his bondage to the law. He was set free from his hatred, his sin, his anger, and his judgment. Paul was set free. And not only was this overflowing grace given to Paul That gave him this salvation on that day that he met Jesus. It was also the grace that continued to flow into Paul's life. That resulted in the faith and love of Christ. And this is what cements our first point here. That grace sets us free from our past. This truth is probably best summarized in the next verse verse 15, what I would anticipate being Paul's life verse if he was ever asked. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Here is the message of Paul to Timothy and now to us. It's made crystal clear that if Christ can and did save Paul, By his grace, then there is hope for you and me and everyone. In this one verse, Paul is reminding us that the gospel is both incarnational and personal. You'll see the significance of these two things in just a moment. I say it's incarnational. Paul says that Jesus came into the world. Notice it doesn't say that Jesus was created. It doesn't say that He came into existence. No, it's just as John said, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, Jesus has always existed. He is co-eternal with the Father, the second person of the Trinity, and according to that eternal purpose of the Father, Jesus entered. He came into our broken and sinful world this is a demonstration of his grace towards us and this is also where it turns personal why why would jesus come into the world simply put to save sinners who are the sinners you are i am the world we are sinners Again, you'll remember last week we considered the purpose of the law. And we realized that all those who break the law are guilty before God as sinners. And it's not long before we realize that that makes everyone a law breaker. But thankfully for every law breaker, there is one who came and was the perfect law keeper. And it was the perfect law keeper who died. He paid the debt that we owed so that we might be made right with God. This is the purpose of the law, to reveal the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of man, thus our need for a savior. These two aspects of this verse, incarnational and personal, is why Paul can say this is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It's trustworthy. It's based on the incarnate, eternal word who became flesh. The gospel is rooted in the person of Christ and we can trust him. It's also been experienced personally by Paul. And he says, believe this, accept this. This is deserving of full acceptance because we know it's rooted and grounded in the eternal God. And I've experienced it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I think it's significant here that Paul describes himself as the foremost. Some may say that this is hyperbole, but I don't really think that's what Paul is getting at. I think that this was important. I don't think he was throwing himself a pity party or wanting to gain sympathy. I think he was actually taking an inventory of his life and realizing, you know what, I think I really might be the worst sinner. Because he was pretty close to it. You couldn't get much worse than how he described himself. A blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. And you'll notice that he also says, I am. Not I was. I think that's significant as well. Paul understood the weight, the depth of his sin. And he never forgot his past. But what it drove him to... Was a new understanding. He was not only, he did not only take on the title of foremost sinner. Once he met Christ, he's been rescued, he's been freed from his past. And so now he takes on the title, foremost sinner redeemed. And he never never forgets that. And you see it all throughout his writing. He was a sinner, but now he understands with great joy that he is a sinner who has been redeemed, who has been set free, and only by the grace of God. And here is where it should hit home for all of us. Because there are no doubt that there are some here today, that maybe there are some watching online at home, and you're wondering where to find freedom. You're trapped you're lost, you're angry, you're in sin, you're broken, you're hurting, you've been against God, you've never maybe thought about God, you never understood this concept of the gospel. I don't know where you've been, but I can guarantee you that if God saved Paul, he can and will save you. The gospel matters. It's for you, and it's only because of God's grace. And maybe you're here and you're a Christian. You understand that it's only by God's grace. But you've realized that you're trapped in some sin. Well, us say the freedom that God offers you in salvation is also the freedom and the power that allows you to be free from whatever sin you may find yourself in. Whatever struggle, whatever hurt, whatever pain, God's grace is sufficient for you. Paul's reminding Timothy, he's encouraging Timothy, he's encouraging us. Look at the example of Paul. And if he takes a Saul and turns him into the greatest missionary we've probably ever seen, and preacher of the gospel, he's for you as well. He extends his grace to you. His grace will set you free from your sin and free from your past. So we see that grace matters. Because it's God's grace that sets us free. But as Paul continues on here in the next verses, we'll also see that grace shifts our perspective to God. Grace shifts our perspective to God. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. Paul continues, he says, But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, this verse reinforces our whole entire previous point that Paul received mercy. Why? So that we would know God can if God extends mercy to Paul, he can extend it to us as well. But there's also something significant in this verse as well. It also shows us that God's purpose in extending his grace to an individual is bigger than any one person. Paul's conversion wasn't just about Paul. And it's even bigger than Paul being an example for you and me thousands of years later as an opportunity to receive God's grace. It gives us an insight Into God's heart and his character. It shifts our perspective to God. It shows us who God is. That he is patient. That his heart is for us. That he is not willing that any should perish. But that all should come to everlasting life. His purpose in saving Paul was not just to save Paul. But it was so that we could see his grace at work. Because it's through God's grace that we see His glory. This is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God that Paul has been entrusted with. And that he's putting on display in the way that he's living his life in faith and in love. That the grace of God has always been and will always be the central focus of His people. It's that is at this point, as Paul is writing this out, he's reflecting on his past and realizing all that God has done and what it means about his grace and his character, and he just has to praise the Lord. And that's verse 17. He can't contain himself. I wonder if he jumps up from writing just so he could shout and sing and maybe even dance to this verse. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's only recorded here once in Scripture, but I'm pretty sure he said this a few more times. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. What we're getting a view of, a glimpse of, is who God is. He is the king of the ages, the one who holds eternal life in his hands. He is immortal. This word literally means incorruptible. In him there is no wrong. He is invisible. That means that he reigns not only over our visible World, but He reigns over all, over all kingdoms and authorities and powers, whether visible or invisible, He reigns. And He reigns as the only true God. This is the God we serve. This is the God who has extended us grace. Therefore, He is the only one who deserves honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. These verses show us where our perspective should be as we contemplate God's grace. They should, we should be overwhelmed with who God is. There should be an understanding of the reach of his love, of the depth of his forgiveness, just in all about his grace. Do you know God like this? Do you know God like Paul knows God? I would contend that this kind of intimate knowledge can only be understood if grace has taken a hold of our hearts and shifted our perspective from this temporary world to God's eternal kingdom. Now we just have to stop for a moment and admit And it's 2020, and there's a lot of things in this world that are a little distracting right now, right? It's craziness out there between COVID, coronavirus, elections, Supreme Court justices, geopolitical stuff. I, I don't even want to know half the things that I know is out there on the news. It is crazy, and it's distracting, and that, if that's not bad enough, that's just like the buzz that's out there. But we all have lives. You've got families. You've got husbands and wives and in-laws and parents. You've got tension and arguments and fights and relationships. You've got marriages and bosses and siblings and co-workers. You've got people that are, go to church with, and you don't know how they are a Christian. You don't know how to get along with one another. We don't know whether we're not supposed to wear masks or not masks. We go on and on, but that's not the point. The point is that we need to be careful that we don't get so distracted by the things of this world that our perspective is focused down here when God and His grace is calling us to look up here to His kingdom, to His glory, and to His grace. It's easy to get distracted by things that ultimately won't matter. Your job, your bank account, politics, all that stuff. In most ways, ultimately, in eternity, they won't matter. Now there are some things that we do and should be engaged with right now that affect our lives, that that affect the gospel. So we should be informed. We should be thinking about how we are living our lives. But what I'm trying to get across this morning is that we will not, never truly comprehend the depth of God's grace if we don't shift our perspective to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God who is all deserving of our honor and glory and praise. So before we get to our last point here, we have to ask ourselves, how are you living? How are you living? Are you focused on this world or are you focused on kingdom values? And I would ask you, how do other people see you living? I have to ask myself, I think my perspective is on God. Does my neighbor know the difference? My neighbor who doesn't know God, who doesn't go to church, does he see anything different about me? Does he see anything different about how I interact with him, how I interact with my children, my wife, how I talk about the world and things? Does he know that my focus is on eternity and eternal things? It's a humbling question that I've had to wrestle with this week. Not only where is my perspective, but is it clear and evident to those around me as well? Are you pointing others to that same heavenly perspective? And so grace sets us free from our past. It shifts our perspective to God. And in these last three verses, we'll see that it's grace which empowers us to press on. Look with me at verse 18. The beginning of 19. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So after coming back from his praise walk, he picks up the pen, he gets back to the task at hand, and he reminds Timothy of his charge. You remember that Paul said, charge the false teachers to stop spreading that false doctrine. He, Paul told Timothy in verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. And now here, this charge I entrust to you. This charge of the gospel. This charge of God's grace. I entrust to you, Timothy, my true child, my son in the faith. He encourages Timothy He's about to say, press on. He says, in accordance to the prophecies previously made about you. If you're wondering what that's about, so are a lot of scholars and commentators. But we get a hint at it if you just flip over a page or two to chapter 4, verse 14. Paul hints at this, this same idea. He says, do not neglect the gift that you have which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And what we get this idea is that early on in Timothy's ministry, that it was evident that this guy had a gift for the gospel, the work of the Lord, the ministry. And so Paul had taken him along. He had put him in Ephesus and the elders are recognizing this guy. And they're saying, Timothy, you are a minister of the gospel. And they gathered Timothy around and they lay hands on him. And at that time, we still have some overlap with the gift of prophecy. And apparently, he was prophesied, part of his ministry was prophesied as, yes, you are going to be a minister of the gospel. And Paul's saying, remember that, hang on to that, because by them, not by just the fact of prophecies, by the fact that God had called him. That's the important piece of this. Hold on to the fact that it's God who has called you. It is God who has equipped you. And it is God that will empower you to do what? That by them you may wage the good warfare. Holding faith in a good conscience. And we don't have time necessarily to flesh all of this out. But what is Timothy to fight He's certainly to fight the false teachers, the errors that can come into the church, the spiritual warfare that will inevitably come into the church, its leaders, its members. He's certainly going to have to fight to wage that kind of good warfare for the sake of the gospel. I think there may also be just a little bit of encouragement for Timothy. This is a military term, and he's saying, be strong, stand firm. Timothy had a tendency, maybe he had a little stomach issue, maybe he was a little timid. And so, Timothy may at times, would have had to fight some temptation to step away, to listen to the detractors, to listen to the people that said he wasn't old enough, didn't have an experience, wasn't qualified. And Paul's saying, don't listen to them. Remember the one who has called you, and his name is Jesus. Remember who has called you, and who will empower you. You remember grace, Because it's grace that will empower you to wage the good warfare. How will He do it? By holding faith. Holding faith. Hang on to the gospel. We said last week that we need to know the gospel and we need to live the gospel. This is another way of saying that holding faith and a good conscience. Holding faith means understand who God is, understand the gospel, understand the truths that come with being a servant of Christ. And if you do that, you will live right because right doctrine leads to right living and right living leads to a good conscience. You know that if you're living by faith, in the gospel and by his grace, that you're guaranteed to live right. Doesn't mean you'll be perfect. Doesn't mean that you will never fail or slip or sin. But it means you will have a good conscience before the Lord because you're rooted, grounded, and empowered by his grace. This charge to Timothy should apply to us as well. And he may stop and say, well, wait a minute. We are talking about Timothy. He was prophesied about. I don't even really understand what that means. But he was laid hands on by elders. He was ordained. This is nothing about the regular old Christian. Yeah, there is here. This charge of Timothy applies to us as well. We won't turn there, but if you go to Ephesians 6, it's pretty clear that every Christian is in a spiritual battle. Every Christian is called to wage the good warfare. You may not have been prophesied about. You may have not had elders lay their hands on you and ordain you for ministry in the gospel. But if you're a Christian here today, if you have received the grace of God through his gospel, I can tell you a little bit about your calling You have been saved by grace for good works. That's Ephesians 2. You have been called to make disciples. You have been called to be holy as God is holy. You have been called as parents to raise godly families. You have been called as Christians to be salt and light in a world that desperately needs some salt and light for Jesus. There is all kinds of things that as believers in Jesus Christ you have been called to. And that's not by any man or group of elders or a prophet. It's by God himself who has called you and has empowered you by his grace. And the same grace that God will empower you with is the grace that God empowered Saul with. It's the same grace. And that's what we hold on to and that's what we rely on. If you're a Christian, you have been called Hang on to your calling. Remember that it's God who has called you. It's not in you. Saying, well, I'm not not equipped. No, you're not, but God will equip you. Well, I'm not good at, you don't have to be. Look at the story of the failures and screw-ups all throughout Scripture. God's like, that's my specialty. Welcome to the club. If I called you, I will equip you just as I equip Paul. And look at him. And look at this example. Cling to your calling as a Christian. Use his grace to empower you to press on. And we have to end with a warning. Because that's how Paul ends the chapter. There's a warning that also applies to us as well. Look at the end of verse 19 into verse 20. But by rejecting this, rejecting the gospel and God's grace, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Oh man, they're being turned over to Satan. And you're like, I don't even know what that means. But you know it doesn't sound good. And you're right, it's not good. But I would actually contend that it's not really demonic, it's not malicious, it's um, actually pretty simple, but it's a a serious charge. I think this isn't something that Paul just got angry about one day and said, hey, I'm turning you over to Satan and throws him into hell. That's not the picture here. The picture is you have two leaders. We know they're leaders because Paul does something unusual. He calls them out by name. I think he calls them out by name because they were leaders and maybe even elders. These were the wolves that he predicted back in Acts 20 that have come up from within the church. They've been confronted with their sin and they have refused to change. They have continued to teach, to preach, to anyone who will listen, false doctrine, errors. They have turned aside from the gospel. And Paul says, okay, I've done all that I can. I'm handing you over to Satan. But I think what this means is actually quite simple. He sets them loose into the world. He excommunicates them from the church. Well, that doesn't sound like a big deal. It should be a big deal. This is why I believe church membership is important. This is why I believe you should be part of a local church body. This is why I believe that even if you're not a believer here this morning, you're benefiting from being under the roof and in the assembly of God. If you were to go to Matthew 18, you see Jesus teach about this. He says, if your brother has sinned against you, if he has committed wrong, go to him. But if he refuses to um, agree, recognize his sin and repent, then you need to grab another believer or two and bring him. And you confront the sinner and you say, hey, you sinned, you got to get this right. And they say, no. So then what do you do? You bring him up in front of the whole church. And if he still refuses, if he still refuses to recognize his sin, his error, what should they do? Jesus says, you treat him as an unbeliever. You send him out into the world. Well, whose domain is the world? Satan's domain. It's the domain of Satan to send you out of the protection of the church and into the world. Out from under the umbrella of God's grace in the church and out into the world. This is confirmed if you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're running out of time here, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's an egregious sin going on. They're not repentant. And Paul says, well, we're going to turn him over to Satan. So that even if his flesh is destroyed, his soul might be restored. And the idea is excommunication. Kick him out of the church. But we should notice through this, there's not malice here is intended to be instructive. Jesus said it, and Paul said it, and Paul says it again. What's his hope? That Hymenaeus and Alexander, as they're kicked out of the church, as they don't get the benefit of being under the protective umbrella of the church and associated with believers and those who identify with God, that they would, what? May learn not to blaspheme. I think you see Paul's heart in this. And this should be our heart if, God forbid, we have to have to excommunicate one of our members, because you're just in unrepentant sin. The hope, the goal, is restoration. That you may learn not to blaspheme. I think Paul's heart for Hymeneus and Alexander was that they would turn into the next Saul. Saul was a blasphemer, but now he's a preacher. Hymenaeus and Alexander, they've rejected truth. They've been sent out. But Paul says, I hope they learn not to blaspheme not to go against the Lord, speak against the Lord. The warning is clear for us. If we neglect grace, if we neglect the gospel, we will make a shipwreck of our faith. So remember your calling. Cling to your calling as a Christian. When you fail, remember grace. When you question that calling, remember it's God who called you and if God calls you, He will equip you by His grace. Grace matters. If you're here and listening to this If you're not a Christian, if you haven't responded to God's grace, Christ's perfect patience with Paul gives you hope today that there is still time to believe, to receive mercy. And then for the Christians in the room, remember what you've been saved from, remember who you are serving. And remember that you are in a continual battle. But also remember that it's grace that enables us to remain faithful. That it's grace that enables us to have a clean conscience. And that it's grace that will ensure we stand victorious with Christ himself. Grace matters. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we're thankful that we have been in short victory by your grace. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of your grace. That you would remind us of the past and the sin that you have rescued us from, that you have set us free from. Lord, that you would help us look at who you are, and recognize just the depth and wonder and majesty of your grace and your love, your faithfulness, your character. Lord, empower us by your grace for as long as we're still breathing to remain faithful, to remain faithful to your service by your grace. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's dance together.